Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. And if you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to turn to Isaiah 9, which is in the Old Testament, and I'll give you a few moments to be turning there. And uh, some of you are thinking, this is Christmas, why are we looking to the Old Testament? And it's really because uh, the whole Old Testament is is one long Advent passage preparing for the coming of Jesus. And uh, the first promise of the coming of Jesus is back in Genesis chapter 3, where the woman uh, and the man uh, have sinned against God, and God promises that through the woman, meaning later on through Mary, uh, the virgin will give birth and be with child, and uh, compressing a lot of the Old Testament images together in that. But you can see as you go through, there's a promise of a child, there's a promise of a child, there's a promise of a child, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And uh, so we're looking at a passage this morning, which is one of the more famous of those passages, talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me invite you to stand if you're willing and able. And honor God and his word as we read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thus, since the reading of God's word, every word of it is true and is applicable for our lives today. Let me pray and ask him to bless us as we read it and look at it more in more depth. Uh, passages that we've read numerous times since we were kids. Those of us who grew up in church uh, communities probably have read this every Christmas for decades. And so we pray this morning as we come to this passage that you would enable us to do it afresh, to see with fresh eyes, to have our hearts exposed to you, and more than that, to see Christ. Father, would you pour out your spirit Holy Spirit, would you take the words from this page and enable us to see our Savior and our King? And Lord, I pray for me. You know the week, uh, how it's been. 
You know the weakness of my body and mind and soul. And so I pray that you would be pleased to hold forth the incredible truth of Jesus in this passage. And we pray that you would bless us all in Christ's name. Amen. Please have a seat. Uh, well, I, don't, I was thinking about it this week. What is a Christmas sermon supposed to look like? Uh, I think uh, that most people, when they think about a Christmas sermon, they think it's supposed to evoke the same feelings as a Santa Claus and reindeer and Christmas trees and bread pudding and all the things that we love about the holidays. And I was thinking about uh, this reality that Jesus did not come at Christmas time. Uh, he came into a dark place at a dark time. If you read back in the Luke account, it says that Mary and Joseph were going to Bethlehem because there had been a decree by Caesar Augustus that they would go and register for the census in their hometown. And so it was under Roman oppression and rule that Christmas took place. Uh, it was not with reindeer, it wasn't with Christmas shows, and uh, there was no Frosty at Jesus' birth saying, Happy birthday! That just didn't happen. If you grew up growing, watching Rankin Bass, you knew exactly what I was doing there. Uh, the promise of the old, in the Old Testament that Jesus would come was at a really dark time. And the story of Jesus isn't simply a sentimental, sweet Christmas bedtime story. It's the story of real hope in dark times. So it's very relevant for us today. So what we're talking about is this. Christmas, or what we're celebrating, is about the zeal of the Lord for us and about the light of the Lord within us. So... First thing, the zeal of the Lord, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. This, path, this verse sums up everything that's just been said in these, these verses. It says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So we think typically about religion because it's the way we've been taught, is that religion is really about what we do for God. And you know what? That's exactly right. But that's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is first and foremost about something that God has done for us in Jesus Christ something that we could not ever do on our own. We would die without him. So some of you earlier this year probably were mesmerized by a video that was circulating of a skier rescuing a snowboarder. Maybe you remember this is back in March of this year. There was a skier who had a body, cam, body camera on, so he's like checking his progress, and he wants to record his progress down the hill. He's going down the these, these slalom through the woods, kind of like tripping over woods and the, the trees and things. And at one point, he kind of pulls his skis together, makes his way through this little bitty crevice between some trees. And as he's going across, you can see something at the bottom of the, of the screen, and he scrapes across something with some color. And it's a snowboard that's sticking out of the snow. And so the skier immediately turns around and sees that that's the only thing sticking out of the snow is this snowboard. So he quickly like, takes off his skis, not quickly because it's the snow and it's powder and he's making his way, but as quick as he can, he starts pulling the snow away from this person and he's digging and he's digging and he's digging and finally he gets to the person's face and starts uncovering and he says, are you okay? And there's a little glimmer of life and the guy says, yeah, I'm okay, I'm good, thank you. And he says, no problem, I'm going to help. So he goes, the, the skier goes off and says, I've I got to get my breath. And then he comes back and they start like moving all the snow away. It was a fascinating thing to watch because I'm not, I'm from South Carolina. We didn't have snow. Like everything shut down with like a millimeter of snow on the ground. I've never been in that kind of snow. But apparently if you fall into a drift like that, you just can't get yourself out. And so this snowboarder said after the fact, he said, I was going to die on my own without someone to help. 
Now, as we look at this passage, this is what he means by darkness. The darkness is so thick, and we're walking it, and we can't get ourselves out. There's no way that we can do it. And so we read this in 9-2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So what is he talking about here? What's light and darkness in the Bible? Well, light in the Bible is a reference to everything that's good, just like today when we use the word light and dark. Light is everything good, and darkness is everything bad. But light in the Bible is attached not to just a concept of good, but it's attached to a person. So in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, we read this, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. So everything that is truly good is found in God. So we talk in the Bible about the light of God's grace, the light of God's truth, the light of God's glory, the light of God's love. So everything that makes life worth living is, re- is talked about in that image of light and of who God is. And so in this passage, he talks about some things that are light. Chapter 9, verse 3, he talks about joy. Light is joy. In chapter 9, verse 7, light is justice and righteousness. People doing right by one another. Now, I know uh, I, a lot of us think about you know, justice and righteousness only in terms of judgment. But what it's getting at is people doing right by one another. And don't you wish that people would always do right by one another? I do. I got an email this week from Apple. And Apple was informing me that my Apple card was now being canceled. They were just going to cancel it, and I needed to click on this link to find out who it was. Now, the thing about it was, is I immediately said, oh, no, my Apple card is being canceled. And then I realized, number one, I don't have an Apple card. (laughs) And then number two, Apple was spelled A-P-L-E. It was missing a P, right? This is just a phishing attempt. And we, we encounter this all the time. There's this desire for people to take advantage of other people. So when he's talking here in this passage about justice and righteousness being light, we feel that because we want to just be able to trust people, but sometimes you can't, right? But there's another way the Bible talks about justice and righteousness. We, we as modern people call it social justice, but in the scriptures it's called just loving the poor for people with means to love people who have no means and providing for them. And don't you wish, I I wish I had a heart that felt that free and generous to just give all the time. Some of you have a way more generous heart than I do. And some of you wish that you had the means to be able to just share with everybody. But some of us are kind of like, yeah, I want that. I want that light to shine in me and to shine through me. But what does he mean by darkness? Well, darkness in this context is life without God. So it's, it's the opposite of everything that we talk about. So it it includes, yes, evil, but it includes things that are going on inside of us. Like if you go through a really difficult time in your life where you weren't doing well emotionally or mentally or spiritually, you might say, I was in a dark place or I was in a dark frame of mind. We understand that. So the darkness are those things that that people look at in the world and say, is there even a God? Like they look at things and say, it's dark. Can there even be a God in the world? In other words, people inherently recognize good things point us to God, 
And bad things have to do with the absence of God, the darkness, the light source is not there. And so as we're looking at this passage where it talks about the darkness, Isaiah describes it in chapter 9, verse 1, darkness is gloom, darkness is anguish, darkness is contempt. In, chapter, in verse 4, darkness is oppression, darkness is violence, darkness is uh, sin. And so when you look at chapter 1 here, there's a hint that God in his zeal is going to do something. And it's hinting at how he's going to do it. And uh, when he says that, um, that he's going to send someone to Naphtali and to Zebulun in verse 1. Because he talks about that as being Galilee of the Gentiles. And that's a rare usage of that phrase in the Old Testament. But we hear it, don't we? Those of us who studied through Mark over the past year, we heard that phrase several times. Jesus started his ministry and began his ministry writ large in Galilee of the Gentiles. This is the light that's going to be shining in. And we see this in chapter 9, verse 6. It's hinting at the coming of Jesus. It says, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. So God is putting a new player on the board that hasn't been here in response to our distress. And he lets us know this is no ordinary human. And he describes who this person is. He says he's a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Now, it bears a little kind of discussion about what those words mean. A wonderful counselor, what does that mean? Well, a counselor is somebody who understands and has great wisdom and can give you counsel. And the word wonderful, when we think about it, we think it's just a superlative of some sort. It's like it's, it, he's not a fair counselor. He's a wonderful counselor. But the word in the, the original language has to do with the way that the Bible uses the words signs and wonders and miracles. So when he's talking here about wonderful counselor, he's not just saying he's a really great counselor. It's saying he, is, he has divine power to know all things. He is someone who has the wisdom of God, it's, and his understanding is beyond merely human capabilities. And then he uses the title Mighty God, which is used of the Lord himself several times in the Old Testament. And Everlasting Father, that's one that's confusing for us, because uh, we, some of us who grew up in the church will think immediately the Trinity. But this is not a Trinitarian reference here. This is a, referring to a father as a benevolent protector who has the task of, the, of an ideal king. And when we talk about loving people well, uh, Jesus has done that. He's, the Bible talks about God being a father to the fatherless. He has concern for the helpless. He has care for his people to direct them. And it's saying Jesus is going to love us the way that a good father would. And then the last of these, uh, the prince of peace. And we hear that quite often in relation to Jesus. And uh, it doesn't simply mean that he is at peace or people around him are at peace. I want you to think about it this way. Is the king of England, well, functionally, he really has no jurisdiction, but let's say the king of England, back in the day, was the sovereign power over England and everything that had to do with England. And when it talks about Jesus being the prince of peace, it's saying that he has uh, the jurisdiction or the domain of peace. And so that he is the ruler who will bring about peace because the nations will rely on him. Now, one of the things I'm realizing in my life as I get older is that peace can only come from Jesus. I experience that in my own life. My circumstances bring grief quite often. But in the midst of the grief, I can find peace by trusting in Jesus. 
But at the same time, I'm realizing that in the world, uh, the things that we do to try to engineer peace uh, usually backfire on us. I came across this quote this week. Uh, In the last 300 years, 386 wars have been fought in Europe since in the last 300 years. Since 1500, 8,000 peace treaties have been signed. 8,000. On average, the peace treaties last for two and a half years. That's it. Right now in the world, there are 32 conflicts. The news covers a couple, but not all of them. And I look at this in the reality that we cannot uh, reverse engineer peace. Peace only comes from God. We can do some things in our lives to have peace, but real peace only comes from Jesus. And so as we begin to look at this passage, this is who he says is coming, and he's coming to bring peace in two ways in this passage. First one is he's come to rescue us from the world and its darkness. Now, what's fascinating for me as I read through Isaiah 9 uh, in preparation for this is there's not really a clear reference to Jesus as dying on a cross and being crucified for for the sake of our sins. The images that are being used here and what's being talked about is as Jesus is the coming king, unlike any other king, who would benefit us greater than any king ever could. This Jesus, the Messiah, was coming into the world. And what it says he's going to do is to bring uh, total peace everywhere. Let me give you a little background on the passage that's going on here. Uh, Isaiah wrote during a time of international and political turmoil around 700 AD. The Assyrian army was spreading through the Middle East like the Nazis spread through Germany. And they were taking over everything, uh, seeking to overrun everyone and take control. And the Jews, desperate and not knowing what to do, made some bad political decisions, joining with people they should never have joined with in order to have protection for themselves. And then with with, uh, Zebulun and Naphtali, they were on the borders of the attack of the Assyrians. And so as this is taking place, it says they were the ones who were taking the brunt. That's why they're in darkness, deep darkness, the way that others weren't, because they were being assaulted there. And so as we, we look at this passage, It's saying, you can't drive out the darkness, but God can, and this is what God is going to do. And this is why the promise of this passage is so important and hope-filled. God has promised to send a light into the darkness, right? Verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We can't do it, but the light of the world can. So the passage is pushing us to a light that would dispel all darkness everywhere. And he's not saying we're going to do it. He's going to do it. So we can believe it. We can announce it. We can proclaim it. We can celebrate it. We can anticipate it. But we're not going to accomplish it. And God is not going to use us to accomplish it. He's going to send this child who's here. So Jesus brings this great reversal of fortune. People who are walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those who experience the grief of oppression would experience the great joy of the the presence of the Lord. Even people uh, who don't want God to have that role are going to have some sort of experience of it, maybe negatively. And this is a big problem for us as, as people in the United States 
Because everything in this passage shows Jesus Christ as a global king who will exert his authority over people who don't want his authority over them. His plan extends to the whole world, Isaiah 9-7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. In other words, it's going to extend to everyone, even over people who don't give recognition to it. And he's not going to do it through a government. He's going to do it, and all governments are going to be answerable to him. And that bothers us. Because we're very comfortable as Americans with a personal Jesus. I have my Jesus. You have whatever it is that you worship. And that's troubling for us to say that Jesus is going to impose himself on people who aren't currently worshiping him. But this is the way that the world works, not just in religious spheres, but in the whole world. Let me give you an example of this. Is anybody here a Buffalo Bills fan? You laugh. One in the back. Anybody else? So we're not singling you out. Just keep your hand down. It'll be okay. So I came across... Uh, the Buffalo Bills have a fan code of conduct on their website, which says if you show up to a game, this is how you have to conduct yourself. So they give these lists of rules of saying, if you're going to be here, this is how you have to conduct yourself. And so I read their, uh, the preamble to all these rules. So I'm going to share with you because it's really relevant to what we're talking about. The Buffalo Bills and our valued team partners have an unwavering focus on the fans and are committed to providing all guests with a safe, clean, comfortable, and enjoyable game day experience inside and outside of Highmark Stadium. Even if they're not winning, that's what they want you to be enjoyed. I want to be enjoyed. We strive to promote responsible behavior and make the guest experience a consistent and positive family-friendly experience for football fans of all ages. And here's where they bring the, the rod and staff. Any irresponsible conduct will not be tolerated in the stadium parking lots or in Highmark Stadium, and in some cases may result in ejection from the game, revocation of season ticket privileges, and or arrest. Now, I know if you're, if you're a Buffalo Bills fan, it, it might be a religion for you, hopefully not, but I want you to notice here, this is a secular thing that has nothing to do with God as far as we know. And they're saying there are rules of conduct that, by which you have to abide. And we have the authority to impose this upon you. This is what we're looking at as we look at this passage with Jesus. And we're looking at this with the Jews. Is the threat of the Assyrians was hanging over them. And the idea that God would come and remove someone who did not want to be removed. To stop somebody who did not want to be stopped. And to eliminate somebody who was trying to eliminate them. And that would have been to their comfort and to their joy. For God to exert his peace and righteousness and justice over people who did not want to obey his peace and righteousness and justice. For them, that gave them hope of the world being changed and being different. This is what a guy named N.T. Wright said. He said, what thrilled these expectant believers was not that God would rule in heaven. He already did. Their hope was that one day he would rule on earth, removing sin death, suffering, poverty, and heartache. They believed the Messiah would come and bring heaven to earth. He would make God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus has come as the king. Uh, and that's what this passage is talking about. But the place that I find this passage really connecting with me is this reality. Is I can't bring real peace to the world 
because I'm a part of the problem. I can't bring real peace. I can't bring real light into the darkness because in some ways I'm a shadow and the shadow can't drive away the night. I need light to do that. And as we come into this passage, when he's talking about the light stepping in, he's talking about not just stepping in politically, but supernaturally and spiritually into the lives of individual people who call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you caught it when we were reading through, but there is at least a sideways look at Jesus as if Isaiah can't help himself, to look at Jesus as the Messiah who is going to die. So in uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, he, he has this phrase, unto us a son is given. Christmas is not simply about a child being born, but about a son being given. And some of you are very aware of John 3.16, where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So as we're looking at this, he's saying that God gave his son for the human race to benefit us. And the first thing he's doing to bring peace is to bring peace between us and God to bring us eternal life. At the cross, Jesus took our darkness on himself and paid the penalty for us so that we could always stand in the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So that as we look at God, we're standing in his love. We're standing in his grace. We're standing in his mercy. We're standing with the full light of his glory upon us, and we're able to worship and celebrate in a way that we couldn't if we were standing in the dark. Now, here's the problem for me and a problem for you is quite often in our lives, we think that that light of God, that his favor shining upon us is simply because of I'm doing all the things that I should be doing. I'm struggling. I'm doing the right things. And so God looks at me the right, but it's actually the power of Jesus and a different light source. So let me give you an image. A couple of years ago, I went to a, a children's museum with my family and there was a little exhibit where you got onto a bicycle and pedaled as hard as you could, as fast as you could, and it would make the electricity go up, and a little light on top of a stand would begin to glow brightly, depending on how fast you pedaled. So I was pedaling as hard as I could, the light was shining brightly, and I could only do it for like 10 seconds. And then I had to like slow down. But you know, at least I got it to light up for a little bit. Now, that's how it is a lot of times for me as I feel like I'm in the Christian life, is I'm doing really hard, I'm doing really hard, and the light's on, and then I tuck her out, just like that. Like, I can't do this anymore. So why even bother? And, but the whole time I find that I'm doing this because I have this sense of darkness about me. I'm trying to create light to shine on myself so I feel better about myself. Not realizing that I'm actually taking, taking it out of the children's museum and putting it in the courtyard. I'm actually in full sun. And it doesn't matter how hard I pedal, it will never change the true light that's shining upon me. I'm in the light of Christ. I'm in the glory of Christ. I have the righteousness of Christ. I have full forgiveness. I'm completely forgiven and restored to God. I have his fatherly affection shining upon me all the time, regardless of my performance. So it enables me to just get off the bicycle and say, it's not about what I do. It's about living in this light. I don't have to produce it for myself because I have this light from Jesus. He has rescued me from the dominion of darkness and brought me into the kingdom uh, of God, my Father. So what thrilled them was that Jesus was going to reign, and what thrills us even more is that Jesus was going to die 
and be resurrected for my salvation and for yours. Now, here's the hard part about this, I think, is uh, we need his light in our darkness. We need his light, uh, his zeal for us. And so he saved us from the penalty. He saves us from the influence of it. He saves us from the despair of it. The light has come, a light shining in the dark. That's a great image of hope for us because we're in the dark and there's a light that's shining and we can see it and it illuminates everything for us. And we shouldn't base uh, our sense of God's affection on us by the amount of light we feel like we produce or the way we often do, how our lives are going. Because life can be really hard. And sometimes when you feel like you're in, life is really hard, God's affection must not be resting upon me because I don't feel it. So this old Christian writer by the name of Richard Sibbs said this. He said, measure not God's love and favor by your own feeling. The sun shines as clearly in the darkest day as it does in the brightest. The difference is not in the sun, but in some clouds which hindered the manifestation of light thereof. So in other words, don't base it on your feelings. But what we're called to do is to bring the truth to our feelings, to experience the love of God in our lives. Um, the key is to get it into you. And, and sometimes people talk about meditation. Christians should meditate on the Word of God. We should read it. We should meditate on it. We should think about it. Um, now, Eastern mysticism talks about meditation as clearing your mind. Get everything out of your mind. But I want you to think about a vacuum, like the vacuum of space. What happens when you clear everything out? It's darkness, right? The Bible calls us to do something else. It, the Bible talks, us, talks about filling our minds and filling our hearts with the truth of God, to tell ourselves the truth about the good things of God, and that's what it means to meditate in Scripture. And let me give you kind of three big ideas for when you're in the darkness, thinking about these things. One is to remember that God promised in Christ to redeem us from the darkness. Because of Jesus, darkness sometimes feels palpable, but we know in Christ it's not permanent. In this life, it may go away. We may go through periods of bouts of darkness, but eventually goes away. But in Jesus, it's not permanent. We may feel it as a shadow crossing upon our lives for a moment, and then it's gone. Richard, uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse was a pastor for 33 years. Uh, his wife died uh, when they were younger, leaving him two young girls to raise. And uh, one day when Pastor Barnhouse was driving with his daughters, a truck pulled up next to them. And when that happened, the shadow of the truck fell upon them, their car. And he got an idea about how to explain what happened to the mother. And he asked the girls, he said, would it be better to be hit by the truck or by the shadow of the truck? And they said, oh, daddy, that's a silly question. The shadow can't hurt you. And so what Barnhouse was communicating to his girls is that for us as Christians, death is a shadow. It can't hurt us, ultimately. It's a shadow we pass through and enter into the presence of the light of life. In Jesus, the darkness becomes a shadow. And one writer said, Jesus is a light 
for when all the other lights go out. Which is a beautiful image. Second thing, though God promised to remove ultimate darkness, God does not promise to take away our momentary darkness. We will go through dark times. And it's those times going through darkness where we have to tell ourselves the truth in that situation. I, I, I'm a person, I don't know the official like personality type that, where you call this, but I can go to some dark places in my own mind. And in those dark places in my mind, there's no grace in the midst of my imagination. But when I start speaking God's truth about who Jesus is into my life, it changes the internal dialogue that's taking place, the thought experiment I'm doing with the darkness, and it becomes as light, and I'm able to escape it and get out of it. I've learned this from a variety of people. One is J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer says we should say to ourselves every day to bring light into our lives. Uh, he, he says we should say to ourselves every day, I am a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My savior is my brother and he loves me. And every Christian is my brother and my sister too. To bring the show. Say hello to our brother. That's good. Um, Thomas Watson did it a different way. Uh, I can only imagine what he was dealing with in his life when he wrote this. But this is what he wrote. He says, even though I am despised, yet God loves me. Even though my friends cast me off, yet God loves me. He loves me to the end, and there is no end of that love. So we're going to go through dark things, but what we're called to do is to speak the truth into the midst of it. And then the last thing is that uh, God has promised to redeem us eventually. It's just as a shadow. God has promised to remove ultimate darkness, but there's something else that's really pretty amazing is God has promised to meet us in our darkness. I don't know what it is about being in the darkness by yourself, but quite often that makes me more likely to reach out to God in a way that I wouldn't when things are going well. Came across a testimony from a lady where she was talking about when this happened to her. She said, years ago, we had a very difficult span when we were living overseas. The culture shock was heavy and spiritual warfare intense. Depression and anxiety were my constant companions, bringing with them sleepless nights and loss of appetite. And in the midst of it all, I kept asking, why? Why won't God take this from me? You ever been there? I've been there. And my husband gently suggested, you want rescue, but maybe what God wants is to meet you in this place. Maybe he wants to reveal himself to you in it, and not take you out of it. And she said, his words of truth stung my heart and my eyes as tears surfaced. It wasn't the answer I wanted, but it was exactly what God was doing and continues to do in my life. As I talk to you and the things you're going through, it's in the dark things, it's in the hard things that you say God has met you and is meeting you. As you read through the New Testament, Paul in the dungeon, and other dark things that happened. God met with them so they could sing with joy, even in the dungeon. As you read through the Psalms, I'm always amazed by this, is it'll give you a little caption about where, Paul, where uh, David was when he was writing. And often he's running from people. It's in the darkness that his heart cries out for the Lord, and he finds the Lord is meeting him in the midst of that. 
And if you can't remember, if you look at your darkness and say, God could not meet me in my darkness. Well, remember this. That God didn't just meet you in your darkness. 2,000 years ago, Jesus took on your darkness. He entered into the darkness of the world. He took it all on himself, our sin, our brokenness, our angst, our fears, everything on the cross 2,000 years ago. And he paid for it fully and completely. So that when you look at the, the gospel accounts, it says there was darkness over the land as a sign that Jesus is experiencing our darkness. And he did that. He took on our darkness fully so that someday you could fully stand in his light. We have Jesus. And what he's calling us to do is trust him. I tr trust that he knows what he's doing. Trust that he has a plan. Trust that he's guiding us. And trusting that he's the only light who can bring peace. People walking in darkness have seen a great light. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, as I think about my life and the lives of everyone in here, there are dark things we go through. And some of us are going through those things right now. So we pray that when we do not have the heart to call out to you to enter into our darkness, that you would just break in. And that you and your zeal would do this. You and your love for your people would do this. That's what we see in this passage. Is you as a God who loves your people and your zeal, you cause light to break into the darkness. I need that right now. I, as I, in my mind's eye, look around at this room of people and even visualizing people who are not here with us this morning, know that they need that. Would you burst in with all the light of your, your truth, your grace, your glory, your love, that we may experience your presence in the midst of it, not just bear up under it, but to thrive in the midst of it. Would you bless us? Would you be with us as we continue and receive this last song as a hymn of commitment to you. And we pray it in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.